You're listening to the Rec2Tech podcast. We connect the tech thought leaders across the globe to deliver content that allows you to make better career and hiring decisions. Look, welcome back to another episode of Preparing the Unprepared, a data-driven podcast that I run every Thursday at 11am where I bring in a bunch of different thought leaders from the, the data space to talk about different areas within business and data. So today, I'm actually going to be speaking with Jacopo, and I'm, I'm always going to struggle to say your last name, so you might be able to help me out here, Jacopo. Talabue? Talabue, very close. Talabue, okay, cool. Good, good try, good try. <laughs> so... Uh, Jacobo is actually the lead AI scientist at Cavio, and I think we originally connected with Jacopo some years ago based on actually his PhD, PhD uh, dissertations in formal ontology and knowledge representation, which at the time, um, I kind of just needed someone that had a load of knowledge that could teach me, and he was more than open to doing that with my team. So, so firstly, thanks for that all those years ago. Um, and then since then, we've kind of remained in touch as friends, and it's been a pleasure watching his success from the sidelines. So kind of look, without further ado, welcome to the show, Jacopo. Thanks so much for having me. It's like really a pleasure and honor to be here, so. Awesome. So look, today we're gonna actually be talking about building an AI startup to which Jacopo's no stranger to. Um, some of the topics that we're gonna be covering in this discussion are essentially back on kind of Jacopo's journey from his PhD through to leading several AI startups uh, from dream to reality. So how to turn ideas into realistic and profitable opportunities, um, how to secure funding and being acquired, what that means for the founders and employees. And then finally, we're going to hopefully go through some advice and best practices for entrepreneurs who are looking to build an AI startup. Sound good? Awesome. Yes. I, I hope I can, you know, I, I hope our story can can help other people build their own. So let's let's get started. Nice. So look, I, I know, I know, um, <laughs> at least I believe you've told this story a few times, um, certainly about the acquisition period that you went through. But I actually want to kind of go back a little bit further than that and really just talk about your journey as someone who entered the world of technology or AI and then kind of finally found yourself to, to co-founding a business that was acquired and, and, you know, running very successfully since. So give us a bit of a run through, Jacopo. Sure. So maybe a bit of context for, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with um with Tuzo, which was to be the startup I, I co-founded. Uh, mm. you know, it's not Uber, so I assume most people would need some kind of context. So Tuzo <laughs> was an AI and NLP startup in San Francisco as was founded by three Italian guys, three Italian friends, uh, all of those with a very, very long last name and hard to pronounce, but mine is <laughs> you know, it's by far the hardest, unfortunately. Um, so we, at, at the time, I was in New York. Uh, Chiro was in uh, uh, Belgium, Mattia was in Germany. So mm -hmm. we got our first investor in Silicon Valley, then we're gonna talk about investment later. Now just go to the story. So we got our first investment in San Francisco, so we all moved in San Francisco in a house together in the suburbs. You know, what we could afford with our, <laughs> with our investment. And yeah. we lived together for basically two years and a half, uh, you know, much like in the movie, you know? And so we, we lived together. We, we actually had the garage. We didn't work from the garage. As you can see from here, I mostly work from my bed. <laughs> Even now that I have a normal job, I, I, I almost I still work from my bed. I, I, honestly, I was working from, from home before it was cool. 
So mm-hmm. I've always some of my best work has been done has been done you know like completely laying down. <laughs> in my, in my, in my we we don't go too deep into that. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> And uh, and so uh, and so we started uh, building this this AI startup, which uh, whose focus was on providing retailers with good NLP and AI technology. Don't want to go to the entire pitch, but the idea is that if you go on Amazon, you're gonna get like a super nice experience because Amazon has a lot of data and has a lot of good tech and good people doing that. If you're a medium to big size retailers, but not in the scale of billion dollars like Amazon, how do you compete? Now, our entire startup was basically like founded on the idea that we had some secret sauce and some idea on how to make your experience Amazon-like without the money, the data, and you know the tech that Amazon has. So we kind of provide Amazon experience as a service for a bunch of retailers. Uh, flash forward two years, and then we get acquired by Coveo, which is like, like a, a Canadian unicorn that is basically doing the same thing, but on a much bigger scale. So search recommendation and AI service for a variety of industry, including retailers. So that is the the arc here, you know, the story, the story arc. So back to back to back to the beginning, which seems to be the you know the um, what in, what's interesting, what interests you the most. So I always wanted to have my own thing, since, you know, since, since you know, as long as I can remember. Mm. Even when I was back in Italy, you know, doing my PhD, I always thought that founding a company would be something that would satisfy me as a as a person, you know, as my inspiration. Finding a company is indeed a much like a very satisfying thing, um, but it's something that you deeply need to want. Uh, it's it's a very you know it costs a lot of sacrifices and you know mm. it's a very long and painful and tiresome journey. Uh, and so first you need to really want it because nothing is gonna kind of be given to you. And second, choose your travel companions very wisely. Um, because at, at the end of the day, especially in a, in a small startup, especially in the first few years, what is going to determine your success is, you know, a lot of stuff, but on a personal level is basically the people you're working, you know, you're walking into this adventure with. Um, so when we started, we, um, we kind of have this idea, me and Shiro, the two original founders, on applying our knowledge of, you know, study in ontology, cognitive sciences, Shiro is a neuroscientist and linguist and linguist. So applying all of this to uh, change search was 2016, around that, okay. 2017. And the idea, so much before the recent NLP, you know, kind of like explosion of, you know, pre-trained model and so on. It was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was early deep learning days for NLP, let's put it this way. Okay. And so our idea was, how do we put all this idea and knowledge that we have to solve search in a different way? Because sure, Google works well, but then Google couldn't do anything like, I don't know, last three movie by Sofia Coppola, right? At the time, if you put that in Google, you would just get search pages that list Sofia Coppola or movies. But Google wouldn't even try to understand the, the query. Of course, now, now, now things have changed. But at that time, we were kind of pioneering that thought that search is more of a conversation, is more of something related to semantics than it just related to keywords. And we thought, and here comes the third co-founder, what is an industry that would benefit from better search? And e-commerce seems, you know, seemed at the time like a very good idea, right? As again, Amazon is very good tech. Nobody else has kind of the same tech. So our idea was like, how do we bring this technology into the world? And e-commerce was a good, was a good use cases for two reasons. First, people need it. And second, mm-hmm. it's very easy to show ROI, which means that if you go in in a website and they're selling, I don't know, a million dollar a month through search, and then you go in and you do 1.5, 
you know, now we have a very tangible way of saying that our company is producing value, which means it's easy to price our service, which is means easy to raise capital and grow the company. So these two factors uh, would kind of contribute to our choice of, you know, putting this technology to use. Um, but our story is by no means, um, you know, like, uh, by no means prototypical. There are people that start from, from an industry. So they say they work in e-commerce, they notice that e-commerce search sucks, and mm-hmm. then they're trying to build a company solving that. Um, in our case, it was kind of the other way around. Like, we wanted to solve search as a general problem, and then right. we thought of what it was a good way to somehow showcase our capabilities. Interesting, because you, you said that you always knew you wanted to kind of start your own thing, but how did you know that that was going to be the path or the journey that you and your co-founders took? Like, why, why was it search? That okay. Kind of... Yeah. So search because so I mean search as a as a as a as a search comes in the general bag of language, which is one of my um, um, you know lifelong interest as a as a as okay. a scientist as a person. I've always been interested in natural and formal languages, so you know what people speak and what computers speak. The other technical co-founder, Chiro, uh, is a linguist, is a neuroscientist, so he studied how people acquire language, and so it was kind of natural that our first startup, you know, was was kind of you know was kind of uh, search is you know is a what we call is a is a small enough part of language that you can try and understand. If you imagine product search, you know the typical query would be I don't know uh, blue dress by Gucci, mm-hmm. right? So there's some semantics there, but it's not like a paragraph in Wikipedia. So somehow search artificially constrained and make the problem a bit easier. So we were hoping we could solve it, and I think with some you know with some some approximation we did. Um, and also search is very useful to the outside world, like people yeah. search on stuff every day. Um, so yeah, but le- I mean more than search was language initially, like how people process language, how we how we understand language, the interface between what computer understand and what human understand. That was mm-hmm. our that was our like you know angle of attack for for this problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned like I guess because you've gone through it now, but a lot of things about the process in terms of funding and you know um, securing the idea, taking it to market, but. That's got to be quite scary for someone who really doesn't have a business understanding. How did you know what to do? Well, we did. <laughs> okay. So we made, we, I mean, sorry, like, that, that's, that's an overstatement. But like, we, the, 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 truth, the truth of the matter is like a part of this adventure, you know, is like Frodo going to Mordor. Like you, you make it up as you go, right? <laughs> it's your yeah. first company, which, you know, your chance of success is at even lower, like statistically than you know, then, then later stage entrepreneur. So are very, are very slim, but you kind of don't see that, you know, you always see the statistic and it's like, you know, 3% of companies succeed after three years. And like, I'm going to be in that 3%. It's going to be irrational. There's, there's honestly nothing that makes you think that, but you know, that's, that's part of the, uh, you know, um, of the, of the, of the courage of, you know, of, of, of all of this. The other thing is that we had worked before in companies. So Mattia was a business person working in the e-commerce business. So he knew that part very well because he was used to buy e-commerce technology. He right. was on the buyer side. So he knew what people would look for when buy something like the technology we were proposing. And it was mm-hmm. instrumental because also Mattia had connection with the market to give us the very first important thing if you're building a B2B startup, a client. So Mattia convinced somebody to give us a shot on a real website. Which is, very, which is very important because at that point, you are three guys in a garage, again, literally in a garage in San Francisco, and you have to convince a guy whose living depends on easy commerce to give you the keys. Because if you don't have a product live, your product does not exist. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Like if there's, if there's no user using it, you probably does not sick. So that was very good on the other side, which is investment, you know, growing the company, design the product is a mist of, you know, your skills and talent and your years of experience in previous company when you were an employee, but you still see other people doing that. And literally there was a lot of, you know, guessing and so on. A lot of guessing was stupid. Like we did a, <laughs> we did an incredible number of mistakes. Uh, one, one way of putting the life of a startup is that you survive, you know, basically by, by correcting your mistakes faster than you do new ones. Okay. And, and we kind of managed to do that with a, with a lot of luck, honestly. Um, but many people, but you know, but, but we made mistakes constantly. Like if, if I, if I had to go back, basically I wouldn't do nothing that we did. <laughs> really? Uh, That's yeah, true. Yeah. So, so, I mean, emotionally, yes. But strategically, a lot of things we decided to do were, you know, given the information, we, well, we're not completely crazy people, given the information we had at the time seemed reasonable, but it turns yeah. out they were very bad, yes. <laughs> but so, yeah, so the next, the next company is going to be another set of mistakes, but different ones, I swear that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I don't think I've ever spoken to a startup founder who said, no, we just got it right. <laughs> Everything went went right. We got funding. They gave us hundreds of millions of dollars. We didn't use any of it. We made loads of profit. That just doesn't exist, um, unless you can prove otherwise. Like, I, I've no, never no, heard no. of that. No. So part of the trials and tribulations of building your own businesses is making mistakes, as you said, and and you learn from those mistakes and adapt those mistakes. And I guess the question is: is once you've been like invested that much time into building this business, blood, sweat, and tears, why would you want to sell it? Or sorry, not sell it. You know, have it have it be acquired. That's 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 a that's a very good question. So um, when you when you grow a start, so our startup was again B two B startup. So we were selling to other businesses, and our product was a SaaS. Was like basically we were selling backend capabilities. Mm -hmm. So let's simplify AI and NLP models. A lot more than that, but you know, just just to simplify. So and at some point we were growing and acquiring more clients and getting more revenues. And at that point, you know. It, it comes the life of a founder every once in a while. The life of a founder comes in stages, you know, seed, series A, series B, series C, you know, IPO and so on. It comes the life of a founder when, you know, it's a reasonable question, what is the next stage is going to be? And the next stage, and, and every time, if you're lucky enough, like we were at the time, to ask yourself that question, um, you know, the answer to that may depend on different factors. So in our case was, do we go out, raise a bit more money, and then go to the next stage of the video game? Okay, and then you know, you know, you fight the boss, you know, like you fight like Super Mario, you fight the boss, and you go on, or or we developed enough technology in our case, enough data and capabilities that we are already, even after two years, we are already somewhat palatable to people to, to much bigger companies that would want to bootstrap their own AI capabilities in in this sector. I mean, Tuzo was small. But we, I mean, by looking at data, like hundreds of millions of people of final consumers every year would eat our models. Mm. So like the startup was very lean, but but we actually have a non-negligible, a non-negligible, I mean, of course, in the world of Facebook, that's negligible. But as if you think of how many people build a company, we still, a lot of people did that. We counted that approximately one person every six in Italy at some point interacted with one of our services in just two years. So we had this, this, this small treasure of data and these small capabilities that we build, but not so small. And we, we get offered on both sides, you know, again, go to the next level of the video game or be part of a company that's already doing that with the same vision and Coveo on that is perfectly online. And that will give you one thing that, you know, the next level of the video game won't give you. 
which is the firepower to skip to skip four levels, right? Uh, so now we are, you know, from six, we are 500 and, you know, our clients are Fortune 500 companies, which is something that we couldn't get even, you know, again, before a couple of years from where we were. So it's different challenges. And I think the, the crucial part for us was the compatibility of the vision of the acquirer together with us. We wanted to change commerce and search. They wanted to change commerce and search. We had a very good personal feeling that has been confirmed through the, you know, first year and a half of us there. Uh, and so it was, we decided that, you know, then we can discuss about, you know, the acquisition process, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the entire configuration of the deal considered what we could do at the time was, was good enough for us to, you know, to, 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 to be part of the Coveo family instead of going to the second level of our video game and, and progress on that. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that everybody will go you know, we'll make the same decision at the same fork in the road. Yeah. Um, but we, we I, I think we generally think that even after a year and a half, it was, the good, it was a good decision. Yeah. And, and I guess you, you mentioned a couple of metrics there, but how are you guys measuring success? You said obviously retail allows you to, to quite easily see ROI, but what were you saying, you know, or at what point was you going to say this business is now successful? So being a startup, I mean, yeah, successful is always, you know, again, profit. Yeah. Even for people going IPO, like profits is sometimes sometimes seen something, you know, like very far on the horizon. But for us, success was on was like there are two types of success to me. One is the product success and one is the company mm -hmm. success. Product success is measured typically as can we say to the people that buy us that they're making a good investment? And the answer to that was a striking yes. With ample evidence, including months of like blind, like you know, randomized A/B testing against known solution, they proved without any doubt that if you bought Tuzo, you were gonna get X amount of more revenues, X amount of average value, X amount of commercial rate, and that I think is beyond, is beyond, is beyond. We proved that beyond beyond any reasonable doubt, and I think it was part of our value as an asset when you get acquired. Like I can prove you that these things actually works in reality. The second part is success as a company. Which, which loosely correlate to that. So as a company, I define it as MRR, like, you know, monthly recurring revenue or annual recurring revenue, depending on, you know, what, what you want to count, which mm -hmm. is the typical metrics for, for a startup to measure its growth in terms of the business, right? Of course, these, thing to, the two, these two things tend to be correlated, meaning that if you have a good product and you can show why people will buy your product and your revenue will go up, obviously. But honestly, reality is much more complicated than that, right? Because maybe, you know, you know that your product is very well in, is, is going well already in March, but then a deal may take, you know, three or six months to close. So, you know, you, yeah. you expect that bumpy revenue comes a bit after the confirmation that your product is very good. Uh, but so these are the two things that as a founder, you want to, you want to know revenue growth. I mean, call it whatever, okay. revenue traction, depending on, you know, if, if it, yeah, like how many people or businesses use your product and on the other side, for us, is like how value we're bringing to the to the world. Like, why why the world in a very tiny tiny place, but why the world works a bit more efficiently because of our models. Um, so nice, makes sense. Two two very clear metrics that, that people can focus on. I, I'm intrigued. You mentioned the product a lot. Um, obviously, being that that that's what drives revenue. But what was your first product like? The first ever product you guys produced. Yeah. Was was horrible. Was horrible. Was horrible. Was horrible. By, by by today's standard, by today's standard was was really horrible. I mean, yes. I mean, I still. I always say I still suck at coding even now. But 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 <laughs> back in the days, back in the days, I sucked like way more. 
Um, I, I don't remember who said that, but if you somebody said that if you're not ashamed of your first product, you're launching too late, uh, which is which you may be, <laughs> which is maybe a bit a bit excessive, but but it contains like a grain of truth. So our first product was a smaller version, was still Tuzo, was still a smaller version of a search engine, but with with less capabilities than what it was the full version like later on. It was a different language, a different stack, limited tracking. We we're still tracking data, uh, but limited compared to what we do we did in the, in the in the future. But it was still the same idea. It was still like a three APIs that you can you can hook up in your website and make it better. One thing that we never compromised on was was data, and I think that is very important for everybody who wants to build an AI startup. If AI is mostly related to data, unless you're doing something incredibly fancy or incredibly hard, or or you're wrong, okay. Uh, getting the right data is crucial, and the data platform should go before anything else. So Tuzo made many mistakes, but that one we didn't do. Even our first version has a very specific and clear idea how we track events from users to inform mm -hmm. our models, and how these events are clean, standardized, and actionable in the backend. Um, so that is, that is, the, that is one of the, my main suggestions for people building an AI product, is that the AI product starts and ends with your data governance, with your with your data flow. Where do you get the data? How people integrate your solution to get to the data? How you clean the data? How these data are accessible? That's by far 95% of the work. Otherwise, you're going to spend 80% of your work as an AI person by cleaning data that you didn't clean before. Mm -hmm. And that's wrong, and that's bad, and that's a bad use of your salary. So ATL and infrastructure is a fundamental component of AI. Don't let people tell you otherwise. Models are the cherry on top. But what's really important is getting, is getting the foundation right. It's interesting you say that because when I talk to people that are looking for the, the next challenge or looking to get into the industry, all they want to do is build the, the latest cutting edge models using the latest tools. And there's, I feel like we're going to be impacted by that in five or 10 years time when no one knows how to, to do the, the, the ETL process or how to clean and, and manage data because everyone's going to be working with such cool stuff, but then there's going to be no foundation layer for them to, to, to build it on. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you see, you see way more, you see way more, um, way more candidates than, than I, than I do, obviously. So I, I take your word for it, but what I see mm -hmm. in younger people, what I can tell you from younger people that maybe, you know, we, you know, we, we have we have you know discussion with we want to hire or something like that. Is that there's a general misconception of the relative importance of models versus data in in real life, right? Like a lot of data in a stupid algorithm will always beat a clever algorithm and no data. That's basically the entire lesson of the last 20 years of machine learning is this one. Is that it is is way more is way better to have more data than to be clever. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things that we thought required us to be clever actually just requires a lot of data. That's the main. We didn't learn how to build better machines. That's a misconception. We still don't understand anything about intelligence, anything meaningful, basically. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we but we found out that many things that we thought required being intelligent actually require just having a lot of data. <laughs> so we can fake intelligence in very narrow tasks by sub, you know, by basically subsidizing that with, with data. Yeah. Um, and 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 data, like there's a bunch of leading comp like this is maybe true for junior people or for people that may have not like worked in, in super sophisticated environment. But if you look at where super sophisticated people invest, Amazon Netflix is one of my favorite companies. 
Stitch Fix. Like the people that lead the field as thought leader, they devote a considerable amount of you know blog posts and and, and you know and papers and so on, not to the model themselves. Sure, there's publishing papers on that, but how to make everybody productive in this infrastructure, how to get the data in the hands of people that use it, which are the best tool to move between your laptop and production. All of these things can tank your startup way, way before birth versus, I don't know, word to vac way before that. That said, you know, we, we publish regularly in machine learning conference. So don't get me wrong. I love doing research and I love pushing, pushing the edge of what is possible, especially when I can connect it back to the business. So, yeah. so I can prove that I'm not just publishing a paper. I can prove that this paper is going to make you, you know, a million dollars if you deploy it in this way, which is what I love. Innovation at the service of, you know, of the business outcome. But that innovation always sits on the unsung heroes that prepare the data and the platform for, for you know, for my model, which in my case is also, is also, also me, me and, and the mm -hmm. team. But like this, this is the, the, the legwork that you need to do to make you productive on the, on the research level. If you're just doing pure research with fake data or fake data, that's a different thing. But if you're working on a company that is between doing products and doing research, again, Coveo or you know Stitch Fix on a, on a but on a on a bigger size, data management is the most fundamental part of your of your life. Yeah, and you need all of these kind of moving parts then to move on to the next step, which is potentially raising more funding or getting more capital. So, a, a question I'm asked often is is how do you even start that process? How do you know who's going to be your right VCs? You know who's going to bring the most value. Are they going to advise in terms of the direction of your business or are they just going to provide money or cash flow? Like, where do you start with that? So we were lucky as in our first investor was the Alchemist Accelerator, which is a very mm -hmm. respectable accelerator in San Francisco. It's probably the most famous on the B2B side. So you always focus on B2B startup. Alchemist, when they accept you for the program, they give you two things. One which is useful, but it turns out to be less valuable and one which is underrated, but is very valuable. The useful is they give you a bit of cash to start your company, which is good. Uh, but at the end of the day, you, you realize that that cash you could have gotten from somewhere else. What mm -hmm. I can give you is foundational knowledge on a bunch of things that are, let's say, cultural in the valley. And they're going to explain you, you know, like what are the, 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 the most important concepts when you do fundraising, when you start your own company, even the legal paperwork that you need to have and so on and so forth. So... Once you have that in place, the knowledge in place, which is super important, then you can go on and build your own, you know, then build your own story. There's no, again, there's no blueprint for startup. Like every story is different, but there's a bunch of things that I think will stay consistent and most, most founders will tell you about that. First, advisors or mm. people in your network that are more senior than you are. Maybe they already built something in the space. Let's say somebody, one of our advisors, for example, was, a very important person in the digital strategy of a billion dollar retailers. So that person clearly knows how to run billion dollar retailers. So he knows how to buy and how to position technology. That's very valuable because I give you insight that you don't have. So these people are very valuable, not just to, to give you advice, but to introduce you to people in their network, clients, venture capitalists, angel investors, and so on. So advisors is super important. And the other thing for us to alchemist was demo day, and the connection you forge with other founders and, you know, at the event of the accelerator. And then mm -hmm. basically a game of numbers and networking, right? It's fundraising, as people say, is a funnel. 
like sailing, right? You have 100 prospects, you know, which is VCs that you think invest in your space or they know you and they may be interested. And then you try and talk to all of them. I don't know. 60 will say no immediately. Okay, but left with 40. Of these 40, you know, you go and pitch. 20 are going to say no at that point and, you know, and so on and so forth until you finally get your yes. Uh, so that is the that is the general. That, that's how we did it. And it's kind of the by the book version. Once you build one company, of course, you're going to reuse all your content and your network to build your second one. But the network, either to advisors or directly people that would put money in your business, you said, is very valuable. Because at the very beginning, you are one person with a proof of concept. Like if you are very, very good, one person with a live client with a proof of concept. <laughs> it's still a proof of concept, but it's live because some mad person decides to trust you. But at the beginning, that's all you have and your team and, you know, and your pedigree and your reputation. So it's a lot of personal touch in, in the first phase. The more you grow your company, the more metrics and objective factor will play a role. Mm-hmm. The seed round is mostly about the team and the market, of course, you know, like just being sound in your business model. Of course, Series D is about, you know, hardcore financials and, you know, unit economics and, and so on and so forth. The earlier you are, the more people will bet on you versus your company, whatever your company does. We better you plus the market, to be exactly precise. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the later stage you are, the more it's going to be a more structured process. That's, that's, that's the general idea. Interesting. And, and let's say you did find an advisor in the early stages. Do advisors charge for their time? Are they people who would take equity in the business? What, how does that work? Yeah, so the Silicon Valley playbook, again, thanks Alchemist for teaching all of that, that serious advisor will never ask to be paid by, mm-hmm. a, by an early stage startup because you save your money for other things. Advisor right. get aligned to your, to your success, typically with a small part of equity. There are special okay. advisor agreements that you draft. This vest towards, you know, in time. So the advisor is motivated of, you know, giving you feedback. You set very specific rules, typically, I don't know. Uh, one hour every two weeks, we're going to have like, you know, like a brainstorming on this topic. We're going to send you the topic in advance and you're going to give us one hour of your time to discuss this. And then we expect you to do intros and so on. By right. giving the advisor equity, we're keeping him interested in the business and we're making sure that whenever he does an introduction for us, you know, is he wants us to succeed, right? Some of our advisor also gave us money. So the other way around. People become advisor and invest as angel and their personal money mm-hmm. because they believe okay. so much in the company. These are the best advisors. The best advisor you want are the one that believes so much in putting, you know, like a small check into the company, being your advisor, and then taking a bit of equity. So when the company gets, you know, hopefully acquired or yeah. do IPO, they, they will get back their money in two ways. The money as investors and, and, you know, and the equity as advisors. So that's the most win-win relationship you can have. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, I've seen I've seen a lot of those titles thrown around with some of the, the at least the big fish that I am connected with at, at Google DeepMind who advise on quite a few different boards actually. Um, and I was always intrigued to know how how they were uh, compensated for their time. Um, but it makes a lot of sense, you know, if someone actually believes in your company enough so that they invest their own money, that's got to be the best outcome. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a sign that they were going to be vest, like really vested in your success. Um, and again, I mean, then if you're a Series F and you have a real board, we didn't have a board because the company was set up with, with a special financial instrument from Y Combinator, which is called SAFE. So you, you don't really need a board or you don't have to give people seats 
at the board when they put money in for you know technical reason we can go into that um but once you're on a later stage on a board and may things may work differently because the company is more stable but at the beginning again it's more building this team of people the core founders and the advisors and you kind of push together this rock yeah. it's very hard like the rock is very heavy so you need all the hands you can to push it to push it forward makes sense and and, and for the most part at least in your experience where do you allocate those funds is it to growth of the team is it to you know bringing someone in that can then go out and win more business i mean where do you put it you just keep mm -hmm. it in a bank uh well people when, <laughs> when they give you money in silicon valley i know it sounds counterintuitive but they expect you to spend it <laughs> so yeah so yeah the, the, the mentality is that yeah you, you need you, you either grow or you die so staying idle is not an option mm -hmm. um so the the way in which it worked for us it was a bit on the so we were at the very beginning we had more customer than which it was an happy problem but with more customer that we could actually support so our first money got into helping with like what did you call customer success manager and relationship with customer so that one of the founder that was doing both business development and and basically managing existing customer we could mm -hmm. decouple this so now we hire one person the person can follow the existing customer and the founder can keep on getting revenue right because right. That, that's what matters the other part of the money comes into product development because the product needs to be better and better and it's to be easier and easier to scale so we're going to hire let's say an engineer that's going to help in this case me the CTO of you know redoing what we did, as I said, what we did that sucked, right? Redoing it better and you know progressively going to a better into into a better situation. And then of course there are fixed costs that you can't really avoid. Like for an AI startup ingesting again, not that not that not that many data, but honestly not that few. Infrastructure is part of your cost, right? Infrastructure is, but it's also part of your value. That's very important. Money you spend crunching data if data is high quality data that you possess. Yeah, it's gonna be paid back at acquisition time. So, mm -hmm. so that's that's really an investment. It's not it's not an expense. <laughs> okay, interesting. And obviously, uh, I want to ask this question as as a recruiter. Do you, do you is that something that's discussed at those stages? Are you aware of the fact that you might not necessarily have the talent you need in your own personal networks? Do you ever consider? At an early startup phase, working with a recruiter, knowing it's obviously going to cost you. I always thought, and I'm going to repeat that, that money spent to good recruiter is very good money. It's an investment. It's not a cost. Uh, <laughs> that said, I don't think that a startup, when you go between five people and, let's say, 10 or 15, mm -hmm. uh, I think that the first group of people that are there would typically work best, in my experience, if they're hired through your network. Mm -hmm. as in people that went to school with me people from previous jobs and so on if you are an experienced founder and like us you have been lucky to meet many talented people around the world you maybe have lived in different places and work in different places you have you know i have i don't know 30 people in my phone book that i can call tomorrow and at least they will hear my proposition that's my point right yeah. and and the first group of of people again it's the people you go to war with so it's the people that you want to vet personally and you want to have this special bond. After that, I'm all for recruiters and I'm all for, you know, they, they before having an HR department, which costs a lot of money and they may not be as flexible as recruiters are for all sorts of reasons. Recruiters tend to be, again, like you like, very knowledgeable in one thing, which is awesome. I would much prefer to pay recruiters than to, than, than, than to build an internal facility in my in my company that then I have to manage and so on and so forth. 
So I, yeah. I, I think it's an, like, again, people is, is at the end your best resources. And I don't know why people would want to save money on that. Like it's literally your value, like literally value of your company. So anybody like you that can give, can bring value to my company, that's an investment. That's not an expense. Yeah, that's the that's the most important part there, though, Jacopo. Like as long as we're bringing value, that 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 is important. And and a lot of the clients that we support are actually in that SME size. You know, just kind of post startup, or they kind of come into the end of 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 that period where they're about to be acquired, and they don't necessarily have the infrastructure to have an internal recruiter being paid, you know, 24 seven to fill two or three roles. Um, but yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, early on in the first five or 10 people, not a lot of sense to use a recruiter, but that being said, you said, you know, you might reach out to your network, friends, you know, um, does that get complicated if, you know, you're all friends, you've known each other from school and someone's not pulling their weight? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's you know, it's a double double edged sword, right? Of course, mm. if I if I get some somebody in that I don't know and and I you know I pay whatever and things don't work out, I can you know I can you know or the person leave you know we didn't know it before, so as long as we're civil, you know, that's, yeah. which I think everybody you know wants to be civilized, it's fine. But if it's person that you've been knowing for fifteen years, uh, that's a different thing. In our case, honestly, I mean, that's nothing. Nothing bad happens. And everybody, you know, I still live, with my, I mean, even in New York right now. So I moved from San Francisco to New York and I still live with my, one of my co-founders. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, yeah, even if we can't afford technically to live in two <laughs> now, now we, now we are employed, you know, now we have a salary, so it's fine. Uh, but we still, we still move to New York together and we want to spend a bit more time together. We have, we have a bigger place, but we still live together. So we, we generally like the company of each other and we still like the company of each other. I was recently to the wedding of the third founder. Um, so, so yeah, so, so it's, uh, you know, we're still, we're still not just very good friends. We're like, you know, the best of friends and we still like each other after, you know, after all the startups. So we didn't kill ourselves. We managed to not kill ourselves, but I, I understand it's a double-edged word. In my experience, um, I would pretty much prefer to have an honest conversation with a friend knowing that the up, you know, the upside of having a friend working with you is significantly higher again in the first 10 high, in the first 10 people. Yeah. That's going to be the people that are going to make the culture of the company as well, right? Not just the way you work, but, you know, the way in which people face problems, you know, our tools, uh, you know, the kind of, vibe, you know what I mean? The vibe, the athlete culture, like this yeah. thing is very hard to, to pinpoint or describe. But for example, we're, we're Italian, we're very direct people, as you can see. We never take ourselves seriously, so we joke all the time also about ourselves. But, you know, that may not be a good environment for everybody, right? Like, you know, there are people that are more shy, you know, there's all these type of component that you need to take into account when when somebody is going to go to you because again the first 10 people are going to work a lot of time together like a lot and you need to depend on each other so that is the that is the general gist it's just, it's funny you say that jacopo because i just had a, a question in my head pop up that i was going to ask around your motivations <laughs> and i was going to ask what gets you out of bed in the morning <laughs> but, oh, yeah. it, but it, it doesn't look like you've got out of bed yet <laughs> exactly exactly so most, only the only thing that gets me out of bed is coffee <laughs> I, I i drink an outrageous amount of coffee um in general for me is is building stuff mm. is building stuff like uh when i said i always wanted to 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 have my own thing is because i wanted to build stuff and be the decision on that stuff together with other people but like make the decision on how that stuff is built i think a very i i, I didn't study computer science when I, when I was younger so i came to computer later 
And I didn't have a formal education in programming, which I think, again, kind of shows up in how, how much I suck at coding still. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm catching up, but, but, um, but the, uh, what I always find fascinating when I, when I start picking up programming is this thing that you wake up in the morning with your laptop and there's nothing. But a computer has some of this virtual thing, like, you know, very close to ideas or to theories. They're not manufacturing thing. So by the end of the day, you may actually have produced something that yeah. was not there at the beginning and that people can use. This idea of creating something from literally your laptop that hundreds of millions of people in our case ended up using, it's a very, I mean, I, I would say it's, it's a point of pride in our, in our journey. Like, yeah, and, and, and computers, like computer is the only thing that allows you to do that, right? Uh, you, sure, you can be an architect and, and build fabulous building, but it's going to take you a while, you know, before you arrive to the point when you can build the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right? An Italian guy in Starbucks in San Francisco, not Starbucks, in his bed, in his pajamas in San Francisco with his laptop, can just because of that, can, you know, crazy. can go and reach 100 million people, you know, in a very small, tiny part of their, of their journey. Like, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, we're not, you know, we're not curing cancer, but we, we can impact a lot of people with our models and with our ideas just with a laptop. And I think that's what gets me out of bed. Like doing, you know, doing everything, this, this, this kind of like building mentality, still, you know, hacking my way out of stuff. Um, and of course, research is a big part of that. Like I, I, I went through advanced education. I published in, you know, in different fields. I have many people still in academia. Many, most of my friends are actually still professor, postdoc, you know, like some. So I still like the idea of like entertain my brain with very, you know, like very, very hard to solve challenges. But but at the end of the day, the best challenge is the one that combine both thinking, like abstract thinking and solving the problem and building stuff that then people use every day. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and, and being able to have like a product at the end of your day, we, it's a slightly different, um, slightly different way of thinking in the recruitment world. You know, our, our processes take a while. Um, we see success, that person gets a job. They grow into something special. They then might lean on us to actually hire and grow their own teams. But every time we get to that end product, which is, you know, placing someone in their role, we kind of have to continue working and then start again with somebody else. Like it's a never ending cycle. Um, sounds quite exciting to be able to have something and be like, this is what I've built. But um, all right, cool. So kind of just jumping into the being acquired part. Um, you guys were obviously acquired. Um, what was that like? A lot of lawyers. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, so okay. So uh, b- back to the back to the story. So once we decided that we would would we consider also acquisition offers and not just you know uh, next level funding offer, um, we had a bunch of we had a bunch of you know a bunch of opportunities to go one way or another, different type of companies and so on. At the end of the day. Uh, uh, and again, I think it stays true. It's like you know, 14 months after, Cobeo was a very good fit for cultural reason, for vision reason, and so on. So that was that proved to be a good judgment uh, back back in the day. Uh, when you got acquired, there's uh, well, any acquisition is different. Like you know, like every startup is a bit different because it depends on what you're selling, right? I'm just gonna simplify this a bit for people that are not familiar with the Silicon Valley environment of early stage acquisition. But simplifying two type of acquisition. Some acquisition are called acquire, which is, you know, a combination of the word acquisition and hiring. Mm-hmm. And some acquisition are just acquisition. The difference typically is that acquire are cases in which the acquirer buys the people and the team 
because they possess special skills or of whatever sort, right? Okay. Makes sense. Uh, they typically do not incorporate any product, any data, or any existing client into their own client base. So the company, they say company A, the, the, the small company gets acquired, gets basically shut, shut down. Right. Uh, and but then yeah. the, the founders right. and the employee exactly work, yeah. go to work for company B, they typically get, a, let's say, the equivalent of a signing bonus as part of the acquisition, and they become a good, important part of this bigger company that needs this type of people. Why? Because it's an even bigger company, you know, even with very good recruiters like you, it may take a while to get 10 people that knows each other in the same team. Yeah. And if, if this company be as a roadmap to, to keep, it may be easier for them to buy out 10 people in one moment than to go and recruit 10 people in one year, right? So if this bigger company is in, is in pressure to get skills, acquire as basically a way to shortcut this process. So that's, mm. that's process number one, which was not ours. Process number B, is, which doesn't involve that many lawyers. Process number B, the one with lawyers, okay, fun, okay, is the one when the company A gets actually acquired by company B, which means you transfer the people, in our case, like a, pat, like a patent application, the data, the API, the infrastructure, and in our case, also the client. So our clients stopped to be our clients and became Coveo client. Mm -hmm. This is more the case when the, the acquired company doesn't just want the people. Sure, people are obviously super important in our stage of Tarot, but also everything else. You want what you actually develop, you want your portfolio, you want your data, and so on and so forth. Every, every one of these things involves a lot of discussion, like people that need to move from one place to the other. You know, that's one discussion, which means negotiation. You, you know, you know but let's be very practical here. You know, how much it costs? Yeah. Like how much it costs to buy us? Uh, and then how much it costs to buy the data and you know how much it costs you know to, to how much uh, what is the value of your portfolio of course it's not an item by act you know it's not a menu but the general idea is that you kind of put on the table everything you have <laughs> and then the other part and then there's the negotiation of you know what we believe this is valued for us and where we're going um, and and that involves like a lot of back and forth between you know not just lawyer but your accountants and and sort of like you know um, but you have to be very transparent when you when you be acquired. So yeah, of course. Uh, so I think it was a very good thing that you know of all the mistakes we made, we made no mistakes in our in our in our in our accounting process. Like everything was was very transparent and very good, um, which plays of course very well with the acquisition because nobody wants to acquire a company that that you know in the, in the end of the day gets sued for for you know some you know some I don't know misdemeanor felony or whatever. So my like my suggestions like never compromise of course on your on your financial stability on your integrity on your on your books uh, because that that will kill that will kill even if both parties want to want to do the deal if lawyers find one thing that it's a liability that will kill the deal it doesn't matter like anything else it probably won't matter um, so it's easy to probably get wrapped up in the excitement of the product and what you're building and to overlook those things right. Yes, it's very easy, and that's why we, in our case we are very we trusted accountants and and people that did that every month, and so we we already were in a very good place. When people ask for our documents, I think we were surprisingly. I mean, given the stage of the company, we we're surprisingly tidy, and mm -hmm. everything was surprisingly easy to easy to you know easy to collect and put in a perspective that people can understand the choices we made on the financial side, on the venture side, you know, on how we pay our bills and so on. And so it was, it was honestly like, you know, it just takes time because, you know, your lawyers, you know, acquire lawyers, again, negotiation. So there, there's all this point of, you know, some are bureaucracy, some are legal, some mm -hmm. are financial as in, again, 
how much this is value, like how much is this cost and how, how we're, we're going to pay this, you know, we're going to pay this, you know, in cash, we're going to pay this in equity, going to pay this in, I don't know, McDonald's gift cards, like, you know, whatever, you know, what, 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 what at the end of the day, what, what is, what is, what is going to be. Um, and so it took us like months to, I mean, after we both parties decided that this was a serious conversation, was not just a small inquiry. It took still months to finalize all the signature, all the documents, sure. you know, make everybody, you know, make everybody happy and, and, and so on. So it's, it do not underestimate how long, like for prospective founders listening, do not underestimate, even, even when everybody wants this to happen, do not underestimate that this is going to take, it's not going to happen overnight. I, even for a small company, this is going to take like a significant amount of time. And the, the only things you can do to protect yourself is doing stuff properly when you start. Good point, yeah. So, so it's not as simple as someone turns up with a brief, briefcase full of cash, chucks it in the trunk and says, right, that's it, done deal. <laughs> that, 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 would, that would be awesome, yes. But, yeah, <laughs> but, but I, have to, yeah, I have to state also for IRS purposes that we didn't receive anything. <laughs> full of cash, so yeah. everything, everything was, everything was, was, was tracked. So no, no, unfortunately, unfortunately not. Remember that with early stage startup, a big, a big point about people acquiring, like, you know, company B acquiring A is also fitting that in their own roadmap. So there's a lot of discussion right. that now we understand because we're part of Coveo, but I'm sure these discussions were already in their minds when in the acquisition process of like, yes, but what do we do with all these assets, right? And, and so you're, you know, you just, when, you, when, you are, when you're dealing, you're just one side of the equation. Now I see the whole picture and I understand, I can kind of mind the mind of crazy people with a symbolic bag of cash at the time. Um, but at the time, you know, you don't really know also what they're doing and where they're going, right? Sure, you have the public statement of where the company is going, but then it's kind of this mutual uh, discovery of one another, right? You, told, you tell them a bit about, you know, what you see in the future of search and they tell you what they see. And you see, you know, if you can combine it and and blah blah blah. So it it takes a makes while. Sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You you kind of touched on just my my last question, but I just before we jump onto that, I wanted to ask, when being acquired, obviously you've got a team of guys around you, and is everyone bought into the vision of being acquired, or is there some difficulty when, you know, it's like okay, well, our names changed, we're working for different people now. Like, are you okay with that? Like, how does that work? Have you already prepped these guys and girls to be ready for an acquisition? In our case, uh, we, I mean, again, the company was fairly dull, so we, we could be, and we, and we knew these people before, so we could be very transparent with, mm. you know, what was happening. So the acquisition process was not just the founder, but everybody knew that this was a process that was ongoing. Of course, right. nobody knew that if, if the deal was going to close in the end, uh, because again, it may, it, anything may turn out to be wrong in, in the process. Um, but everybody, and everybody was fine with that since the very beginning, you know, provided, you know, we can make sure that our vision as a company and the way in which we work was translated to the other company. Right. Uh, like, you know, for example, we still work together, right? Like we, we still like us, you know, we're 500 people, but we still work on many projects. We still work, of course, with other people as well, but we still work together, which for us was an important part of the, um, of the deal. Um, I think if you guarantee that to your employee, they should be they should be fine. You know, all employees have typically a vested interest in the company as they receive again Silicon Valley playbook. Everybody that gets hired in the first phase gets a part of equity in the company. So you know, the acquisition is also repaying you know some of the 
hard sacrifices that the people made at the very beginning when nobody was willing to bet on this company, yeah. but they did. So I think for us, it was an easy internal sell. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly hard. Yeah, cool, cool. Uh, I guess look, my last question to wrap this up then, Jacopo, is um, what advice would you give? You, you've kind of touched on lawyer up and make sure that you, you're transparent with everything you're doing at the back office side of things. Um, but what advice would you give to, to somebody, a budding entrepreneur who's got an idea that wants to go out and build an AI startup but just doesn't know where to start? Um, so two options, depending on what you mean by AI startup. So I'm going to go through that in, in turn. First, okay. first problem, problem facing, which is the startup that investor typically like. Find a problem big enough to be worth solving. That is, do your own work in market analysis. You know, have somebody that understand business and you know pricing model and business model. If there's a problem that nobody has solved and it's worth solving, or the people solve but it sucks, worth solving means a billion dollar market or more in Silicon Valley term. Um, then build a solution that's tailored to that and start owning that niche. Start owning that problem better than anybody else has done before because you have better focus, I don't know, better tech, a different angle, whatever you have. So that's option number one. That's the easy part on the, on the tech side, uh, but it's hard on the business side because you need to know the field very well. Like you need to understand, in our case, Mattia, you need to have somebody that understands e-commerce retailers very well. You have to know how to talk to these people. You have to know how much your product is value to them. Option B is called Deep Tech, which is much harder startup to do, which is a company that, you know, sometimes I think it's not fair, but sometimes call it technology in search of a, in search of a problem, like a solutions in search of a problem. Sometimes you have a very good idea on how to solve an AI problem in general, and you're going to invest a significant amount of money in R&D, and then you're going to try and find a market that satisfies your need. Uh, that's hard because it may be that no market will perfectly fit your nice model that you just built. So unless, unless your model is extraordinary, you may end up being you know, not good enough to be acquired for your tech and not generating enough revenue or enough market interest to raise money. So like... Pay attention because if you focus too much on modeling without a, without with it really a roadmap, that's gonna be a problem. There are, there are famous startups that did that. DeepMind, that probably everybody knows, was a deep tech startup. Like they raised money with no intention of making one dollar of revenue and no intention of building anything. They published one nature paper and they got acquired by I think seven hundred million dollars, something like that, by Google. <laughs> but that's not what most people do. The people that be in mind are very special people. They have access to very special things. Uh, you know, and, and they can chart a trajectory that's not open to anybody. So if you just have an idea, my, my suggestion is think it through a business problem that makes it worthwhile for investor. That's your first, that's your first goal. Once you do that, build a small version of that for your niche, a prototype is going to suck, but no worry, nobody's going to know because then you're going to raise money and build a better one. It's going to suck and convince somebody to use it. Once you have somebody that used it and trust you, you're, you're halfway, you know, you're halfway through, through, the, through your seed phase. Now, now, now the hard part is that. Now you go out and raise money, but if you have clients, it's going to be easier and so on. It's still going to be hard, like, don't get me wrong. It's still going to be incredibly hard, but your chance of success is if you think your market through and you have a prototype on a client, it's going to be, I don't know, 100 times fold if you just go to people with an idea and pitch them. That's not going to work. Never. That's never going to work. Never, like never gonna work. <laughs> okay, so do your homework. You know, put in the put in the time, put in the work, put in the sacrifices. Believe in this because if you don't believe in this, guys, nobody else would. 
So believe in this, commit to this, and you know, and and try to bootstrap your way up to the first stage when then you can go out, raise money, and you know, and make it successful. Brilliant. Great tips. Um, look, myself and Jagabo are always open to questions. We didn't actually have any come through on LinkedIn LinkedIn here, but I am sure we'll have some follow-ups. I've got a couple in my inbox right now that I'll ping over to you. Um, really good insights and thanks for Thanks for just kind of opening up and telling us a little bit about your journey. Of course. Thanks so much really for having me. It. Yeah, it's always fun. If you guys want, I, I tend to be a very reachable person through, you know, typically LinkedIn is the only social that I basically use. So if you want to know more or, you know, like, you know, like exchange a friendly chat or, you know, or whatever, please ping me, add me on LinkedIn. It was super happy to, super happy to help if I can. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining. And um, look, thanks for everyone that tuned in. Next week, I'll be coming live again at 11 o'clock on Thursday with James Nuffner from Candidly. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about your technical screening process being broken and how we can introduce AI into hiring. So uh, looking forward to that particular conversation. Uh, we'll be following up with lots of short form content sharing on LinkedIn here too. So look, thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Jacopo. And I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks to you. Thanks, guys.